How do you mend a broken heart? It's not easy, is it? One of the things that is so difficult about our world today is the idea of peacekeeping or peacemaking. It's what we do when we take something that is messed up and we seek to find peace. We seek to repair and restore it by peace. I've mentioned before that at the Spiritual Sword Lectureship, I've been privileged to be there the last few years, and they always seem to assign me a topic that I've told them is usually a much more difficult topic to write about. And I told Bradley, the preacher there, I said, this year takes the cake. I don't think I've ever been assigned a subject that I dreaded writing about more than peacemaking. And I think if you look at the way our world and our country is right now, you'll know why I say that. We need peace. We need our country to get back to peace. We need to get back to a time where we're not fighting and at each other's throats every single second of every single day. And unfortunately, today, our world seems to no longer understand what peace even means. You know, if you have an uh, opinion about something that some don't hold, many no longer look at it as you just having a different mindset. No, no, you are now considered to be a bigot, hateful, uneducated, and downright terrible person. Welcome to 2021. That's the way our world is right now. That's where we're heading. That's where we look to be at. And while it is certainly true that there are people out there that have sinful or just plain wrong opinions, it is also true that many in our world have replaced absolute truth with their own opinions. They've taken what is gospel truth and changed it. And that's a flawed premise. We're told in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 that mankind's thoughts are not like our thoughts, nor are his ways our ways. They're much higher than the heavens. They are greater than our own thoughts and ways. But unfortunately, even the church has fallen into this trap. It's not just the world. You know, we've allowed certain matters of opinions to destroy our congregations. We've allowed members to forget that leadership that God has set in place is the eldership, Acts 20 and verse 28, that they have the right to rule in the matters of opinion, in the matters of you know, scrutiny as far as what they're concerned, as far as matters of, you know, we, we talk about, and it's escaping me the word now, but convenience is what we're talking about. The elders have the right to change the service times on a Sunday to 12, 9 p.m. and midnight if they wanted to, and there wouldn't be anything wrong with that as long as we were here midnight Sunday morning, of course. But when we look at what the elders have the right to do, they can do anything as far as matters that don't pertain to doctrine. That includes matters pertaining to opinion. Now, as long as they're not doing it and making it doctrine and making it law, there's nothing wrong with that. But unfortunately, many people have forgotten that, and sadder still even is the fact that there are many congregations that seek to call themselves members of the Lord's body, and they're not doing what the Bible says the body's supposed to be doing. And so they are in danger of needing to be given peace, needing to have peacekeeping. These are just some of the battles that are facing the church today. And, you know, how has the church responded to the pandemic you know, as a whole, I think you and I could both agree that I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with many of the church's efforts in regards to this pandemic, with many of the preachers, teachers, elders even in some congregations, that instead of taking this as an opportunity to become closer and stronger together, we've driven people further apart. 
Unfortunately, that seems to be the case in a lot of places. Our definition of peace, it seems, is peace in my life at any cost. Don't care who gets hurt. Don't care what happens. As long as I have peace, everything else will just fall into place. And that mindset brings us to seek out our own peace instead of the true type of peace that benefits the Christian and the church. And so today I want us to take our Bibles to James chapter 3. And I want us to start in verse 18. James chapter 3 and verse 18. And I want us to consider the passage that we are looking at today. James 3 and verse 18. The Bible says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, when we talk about peace in the New Testament, I know we could talk about peace in the Bible, and I, I wouldn't mind doing that, but for time's sake, we'll just look to the New Testament. We're told that Jesus is our peace. In fact, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 78, Zechariah prophesied about the coming Messiah, Jesus, and he said in verse 79 about this day spring that comes from on high is coming to do what? To give light, verse 79 of Luke 1, to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is our peace. But Jesus in his teachings also said and expected his disciples to be peaceable. In Acts chapter 9, verses 30, or Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, Acts 10, 36, Romans 1, 7, Romans 5, 1, Romans 10, 15, Ephesians 2, 14, and verse 15, and as well as Ephesians 4, 3, tells us that the apostles took what God told them, what Jesus told them, that we'll look at here in just a second, and they applied it. They did it. They sought to be peaceful people. They were bulldogs when it came to the truth, but they were peaceful. They weren't seeking wars and fighting and all of these other things. They simply said the truth and everything else fell where it may. But they were told in Luke chapter 10 and verse 5, at one occasion Jesus stressed to a group of people that when they entered a house, declare peace upon it. You've probably seen depicted before I come in peace, I mean no harm, your hands are raised, and you're trying to show I'm not a threat. That's really what Jesus told his disciples to pronounce, that they weren't threats. And he also gave them comfort in that he was leaving peace to them, John 14, 27, and John 16, 33. But the disciples took what Jesus said to be peaceful people, they applied it, and as a result, you know what happened, right? The church thrived. It grew. Rapidly, mind you. On a daily basis, it was growing. Peacefulness is a big part of holiness. Now, when we look at the text that we read a moment ago in James 3 and verse 18, I want us to first give the sense of what this text means. When we talk about giving the sense, that's from the idea of coming together, as Nehemiah chapter 8 tells us, where they came together to give the sense about what the law had to say. And we want to figure out what does James 3.18 really means. And when James started James chapter 3, he had begun handling a few different topics. He started by first covering the seriousness that our teachers have to possess in order to proclaim his message properly. Even going as far as saying not everybody should be a teacher. James 3.1. He shifts to a section then in verses 2 through 8 where he shows that 
how we say, or how what we say, I should say, is so crucial. What you and I say is critical, because no man can tame the tongue. James 3, 2 through 8. Along the same lines, we have to be careful to not be hypocritical in our speech. James chapter 3, verses 9, and 12, 9 through 12. And finally, he shifts to this section on wisdom, verses 13 through 17, and how we can be sure that we are wise individuals. And he ends it by saying, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who bring peace. That's the text as far as giving the sense of the matter. But when we look at doing things the way God wants us to do, it brings about peace. If I do things God's way, is my life really going to be all that bad? No. That's what the world would tell you. It's what the world wants you to think. But if I truly do things God's way, I don't have to worry about anything. Ministers have preached and proclaimed for years the idea of no one can do it for you. It's up to you or to me and to me alone and to you alone. So push on, push forward. Make your life about serving Him and bringing peace in doing so by making peace ourselves. But that nugget of information, James penned long before any gospel preacher ever made that statement himself. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But what about the context of what we're studying here? The context, bringing it all together. Well, the context is really twofold. First is talking about wisdom, verses 13 through 17, where when we begin reading that, we figure out the purpose of that section is all about wisdom. That's what we're talking about. And it seeks to showcase this proper wisdom that needs to be possessed by every Christian. But wisdom's not simply having street smarts and book knowledge. Unfortunately, there are plenty of brilliant people that have died lost. Plenty of them. And as long as the world keeps spinning, there will be plenty more. Book smarts and street knowledge and all of the other things that you can talk about, they don't change anything for me. That's not enough. We need to know then that for those who received the letter, it was not about them being smart physically. This wasn't sharpening the mental mind from a physical standpoint to be able to handle things from an academic idea. No, we're talking about a spiritual mindset. Wisdom being found in being a good person. Now, I've, I've mentioned to you before, I don't really like saying that man is good because the Bible says no one is good but God. But we strive to imitate His goodness and righteousness, according to 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, by living as close to His life as possible. By doing everything like He did as best as we possibly can. We're to live what we are teaching. That's why James said that if teachers wouldn't live what they taught, they need to get out of the teaching business. If you're not going to live it, you have no business teaching it. No business. And horrifically, one can be wise by the world standards and be performing many evil works, according to verses 15 and 16 of James 3. The world standards of wisdom aren't enough. But it's really verse 17 that gives us the formula for proper teaching and proper living. We're told that in the first place, as this verse really seems to be a sermon all by itself, there's four things you can learn from it. First, wisdom is pure. Purity and God go hand in hand. 
Secondly, wisdom is peaceable. It's peaceable. Basically, if we're not going to be a part of the solution, then don't be part of the problem. Third, it is gentle. Further proving that we are to handle ourselves in meekness toward potential problems that can arise. And finally, wisdom is willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. But the second part of this context is actually found in chapter 4. I don't have time to read them, but if you want to read verses 1 through 12 of James 4, that's what we're discussing here. But you know when the Bible was made, the people who separated things into chapter divisions didn't always do the best job. They thought this is a good place to stop and keep going. But actually when you look at chapter 4, that first word in verse 1 tells me it's not a new section. From where? What are we talking about from where? Why are we shifting to this new section? James could say, well, we're not. Where do wars and fightings come among you? This war and unrest, the things that we have going on around us, it happens because of our own lusts. It happens because of the way that we behave and react. And when you and I think about all of the things that are going on in our country right now, we're warring with each other. We are at war. And honestly, it's for the same reason. We have a problem. And the solution is peace. War. You know, it's not supposed to be that I look out for myself rather than others. That's Galatians 6 verse 10. Look out for those that are without, but especially those within the house of faith. Doing good to all men. We sometimes will sing the song, None of Self and All of Thee. And when my dad came and did the gospel meeting here, I was trying to find that song for one of the services. And I texted Nathan and I said, what is it called in the paperless hymnal? Because I kept typing in some of self and more of thee. And then I realized that's not the words that we're supposed to. It's not some of self and more of Christ. It's none of self and all of Christ. I'd gotten the words mixed up. But the unfortunate problem is this interesting hymn shows that all but the last verse are really showing the attitudes that we have toward God and they're improper. That last verse is what we strive to be, but it's all the other ones that we usually fall into. None, less, more, some, whatever it is, it should be none. That's the one we strive for, but too many times it's the other's. You know, our sinful lusts and desires were nailed to the cross. Why do you want to go get a hammer and pry those nails off of that cross and reapply those sins to your life? They've already been taken care of. They've already been washed away. Why do I seem to be so intent in keeping them by serving self? And by doing so, I don't have peace. I have war. Now, when we define our terms, I want you to notice what peacemaking is in the first place here. And I put them on the screen, these first two. Peacemaking in the first place is knowing when to yield. I've mentioned this before about Adam, but one of the first things I taught him when we were going to start wrestling was to tap out. Whenever you feel uncomfortable, tap out. It took a couple weeks, 
because he didn't know what I was saying. But now, if we're fighting and he feels uncomfortable at any time, or if I am hurting him in some way, he just taps out. I know, okay, I'll stop. That's yielding. That's him saying, I give, you win. I give in. Now, he doesn't get that because he'll do that and he'll go, I beat you. No, you don't, you don't tap out of a fight and win. That's not how that works. But in his mind, it does. But really, knowing when to yield is knowing that I don't always have to win a fight. And Paul wrote in two places, one to the church at Corinth, one to the church at Rome, about this idea of knowing when to yield. Chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians talks about meat offered to idols and to not causing my brother to stumble or to offend my brother by making them do something that violates their conscience, causing them to sin. In Rome, he tells the people at Rome, basically, just don't even. Don't even do it. Leave it alone. You have no business getting involved in this. Let it go. Knowing when to yield. But it's also the idea of upholding the pattern that's been set before us. This mindset is what we find in Nehemiah 8, where they discovered that they had these feast of the booths that they needed to keep, and they had not been keeping it. According to verse 17, they'd neglected to do this even back to the days of Joshua. That's a long time. And yet they started making some booths. That's upholding the pattern that's been set before us. That's true peacemaking and peacekeeping. But it's also showing the gospel in a non-hostile way. I mentioned this in the Bible class, but... I sometimes say that I feel like I'm a man born out of time because I wish I could live in the days where the gospel could be discussed without such trepidation and fear. Where hard sermons are welcomed everywhere. Where the gospel message is proclaimed and the elders stand as strong as they can. And that's not a problem here, by the way. But it's a problem in our world. It's become a problem with many of the churches in the world. And you and I look at what we have in front of us and we have to go out into a hostile world and show the gospel in a non-hostile way because we're told to bring the gospel in peace. That's the point. How we handle and proclaim the gospel is of the utmost importance. And too many people today are more focused on winning arguments than saving souls and convincing people of the truth. I sometimes cringe when I, I see on Facebook or hear someone talk about, I had this debate with this local person in my community, and I said this, 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 and this. I showed them. Showed them the way out? Or did you show them the gospel? Jesus never went to his disciples and said, guess what I did to the Pharisees today? Guess what? Oh, I got them. They thought they had me, but I knew exactly what they were going to ask. And I turned right around and I asked them a question. And they all ran away. Got them. It's not what he did. And yet we have too many people that that's their mindset. But then we're told that we need to stop division before it even starts. You know, not everyone in the world is going to get along. I know that. You know that. You can ask somebody what their favorite candy is, their favorite sports team, their favorite restaurant, their favorite whatever. Look, my, my father-in-law and I will debate for hours about whether you're a Mac or you're a PC. That's just what we do sometimes for fun. 
I don't think anybody else thinks it's fun, but we like it, and so we'll keep doing it. But we, we're just so different on that. I'm a Mackie. I like Apple. He doesn't. He's very passionate about that. I'm very passionate about me and what I like. And so we'll butt heads a little bit, all in clean fun. But there's nothing wrong with that because we're not going to get along on everything. I don't expect to get along with everyone on everything. Because division in simple matters is not an issue. It's not a problem. The issue becomes when we divide ourselves over what the gospel teaches. And there's too much division in this world in regards to what the Bible teaches. Peacemaking is knowing when to yield, upholding the pattern that's been set before us and showing the gospel in a non-hostile way and stopping division before it starts. But what about what peacemaking is not? Look, in the first place, it's not a passive activity. This is our whole lives. This is my whole life, seeking to do what I can. But I want to spend some time on this one. I think our world needs to hear this. Peacemaking is not holding the exception as the standard. I want to take you in just your mind to the idea that you and I don't know what it's like to create a world, populate it with people, and watch in horror as they deem us unworthy of love, devotion, and worship. We don't know that feeling. God does. And we certainly don't know what it was like for Jesus to watch the city of Jerusalem in disarray and in shambles. Matthew 23, 37-39. But too many times when we want to justify getting upset about something and lashing out in anger about it, we point to the only time in Scripture where we are told that Jesus got angry enough to run people out with a whip. That's John 2, 13-22. And it happened. You can't deny it. Jesus fashioned a whip and he drove people out of the temple, turning tables over and yelling, essentially, you won't make my father's house a house of merchandise. And the belief that is so given right now in our world, and I've seen people post about this, the belief that is given is that the world is expected to imitate Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 11, 1, and we would be well within our right to get angry in any situation that we deem to be unjust to the point of going and throwing tables over and fashioning a whip, essentially, and going after people. That we would be within our right because Jesus did it, therefore I can do it. Let me give you some issues with that belief. First, Jesus had seen what Jerusalem had become and it broke his heart. He wept for the city first. His first response was not to go and flip tables. His first response was not to go ransack the temple. He wept. He sought to try to bring about some unity in restoring them, and they wouldn't have it. He wanted nothing more than to justify and sanctify himself. Because, you know, Jesus did not just decide one day when he was found in the temple that it was being used improperly, that his first response was, I'm going to go get a whip, and I'm going to show these people who's boss. That wasn't it. He had genuinely attempted himself to be a solution before he resorted to such a drastic measure and method. But second, the other reason why I'm not a big fan of this belief is Jesus was in direct opposition with the Pharisees and the Sadducees on a near daily basis. Where was the whip on those occasions? If you and I can use that one example to justify anything, 
righteous violence or righteous anger in our minds, if we use that to justify it, then Jesus too needed to use it every time. And there were many times where Jesus, such as Matthew 23, verses 1 through 36, would call the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers and hypocrites. He was not speaking nicely to them. And yet he didn't have a whip in his hand. Jesus understood that peacemaking did not mean that every situation called for a whip. Even when he was faced with people that were going to be the very reason he himself is put to death. Evidently that whip was the exception and not the standard. And our world would do well to remember that very thought. It's not about fighting every single time we have an opportunity to, physically speaking. You and I can spark change and promote the goodness of God in Christ without ever picking up a whip. Jesus certainly did. There were times where it was called for, and I can't deny that. It was. Evidently, it was needed there. But Jesus knew when it was and when it wasn't needed. But this third one you're going to think is an oxymoron because I just said all this stuff about don't pick up a whip, and then I say peacemaking's not refusing to fight. You can fight. Look, you, you can fight. There's nothing wrong with fighting. The disciples had an aid that helped guide them into all truth, John 16, 13. And our circumstances are a little different today in that we don't have the Holy Spirit, but we've got the Spirit's words in the Word of God that I take as a sword to any battle that I'm invited to that needs it. And I do fight for what's right. I do fight for the truth. I do stand when other people are refusing to. So should we all. And I know you are. Finally, peacemaking is not accepting everyone for who they are. That's what many people are trying to tell you today. Peacemaking is, you love me because of who I am and just accept it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not promote this mindset that just because I am this way, God just has to accept me. Especially if I'm living in opposition of what His law teaches. In the time of Jeremiah, there were prophets who tried to convince the Israelite people that God would accept them in their current state. They pronounced peace, peace, and there was no peace. Jeremiah 29, 1-23 especially, as well as Jeremiah 6, 14, 8, 11, and verse 15. Many preachers, prophets, and people have tried to make peace on their own terms instead of understanding that the only way we truly have peace is with God. Peacemaking is not just accepting people as they are because that's who they are if they need to make changes. Now as we shift to application this morning, I've got a few things for you to think about, three in particular. I want us to seek peace in the home in the first place. A true change really does start in the home. We sometimes really sing, have sung the song, Get Right Church and Let's Go Home. And in times that's true, and we'll talk about the church here in just a moment. But in reality, the problems of our world are really simple. Mothers and fathers need to start training their children again. They need to start looking back to the Bible and seeing what the Word of God says for them to do and making that determination to change their lives and requiring a standard 
Because peace is only found in the home if our homes are adorned with God and His presence. That's it. Secondly, what about seeking peace in the church? You know, the church cannot suffer in regards to peace. Being well kept at home is not enough if we're not actively trying to have peace at the church. Can we really have it be said that someone in the church is a peacemaker if we're not actively seeking to aid the church in some way or another? I touched on it last week with Ephesus. That's why they died. They stopped seeking peace among the church. Elders, deacons, ministers, members, we all have specific jobs that must be fulfilled in order for the church to thrive properly. But that idea that that is just not my job. You know, what was found among the first century Christians was a mind to work among all of the people. And I've been guilty of not having that mind. I know you would say the same about yourself. Life can get in the way if we let it. But that is just not my job. Once I become a Christian doesn't cut it. With Christianity being my life, my vocation, according to Ephesians, my job, if there's something that the Bible says I can do, it's not a suggestion. It's an expectation. That is just not my job, is not what will work. But finally today, I want us to think about seeking peace in the world that one's the hardest. Because the world hates you. And it hates anyone that wants to serve the Lord. Jesus said as much. Don't be so surprised, John 15, 18 through 25, if the world hates you because it hated me first. And you're my disciple, so it's going to hate you because it hates me. We're not ever expected to find ourselves, though, caught up in the cares of the world. We seek peace even when the world will not. And because of this, because we demand a standard, because we expect people to change, to be different, to grow, the world will despise and reject us. But that's what they did to Christ. Are you really that surprised? Should we be? The Bible is clear that peace is necessary to mend our world, our country, our states, our cities, our churches. And perhaps you have not been seeking peace like you should. Perhaps you have not been the picture of Christianity that you need to be, whether in the home, in the church, in the world. And you need to change that. The Lord is waiting for you to get your life right, to live for Him and not for self. Won't you be a peacemaker as together we stand and sing?